Welcome to Case by Case. This is a podcast series brought to you by Luke Sadkovich. That's me and Callum Chain. How are you, Callum? That's me. I'm good. How are you, Luke? Good, good, good. Hey, I'm, I'm interested for today. I'm looking forward to it. This is a, a different, well, same but different, if you know what I mean. We're going, we're going back into the archives. We're going right back to 1961. Um, and there's a reason. There's a reason why we're going back into the archives. Um, I'm actually um, teaching a university course at uh, my alma mater at the University of Wollongong out in Australia in a few weeks. Um, and as a part of preparing for the course, I've had to read some of the materials that uh, the students are going to have to read, this case being one of them. So I thought, what better way to prepare than uh, get my um, fellow podcaster to read the case with me and we chat about it. Um, and so that's what we're going to do. It's a, it's a sneak preview for the students as well. They can come on and be top of the class having uh, listened to us talk, talk through these cases. There you go. I, I think what I should do is not tell anyone that we've done the podcast on cases that are in the course and see who's just been following the podcast. <laughs> so if you're a student and you have heard this, um, in the course, let me know. Straight to the head of the class. No, I'm joking. Um, okay, right. So what case are we talking about today? We're talking about a case, I think, with a great name. It's a really good name for what we're about to talk about. The case is called Mash and Murrell, LTD, v. Joseph Emanuel, LTD. Both traders of potatoes, well, they were once upon a time. I think they called them dealers back in the 60s, but they were effectively uh, commodity traders. And the commodity that was being shipped in this particular trade or being bought and sold in this commodity trade was potatoes. And here I am thinking when mash was mentioned in the name of a potato trader that that would have something to do with the potatoes. No, it's a Mr. Mash. Mr. Mash is or was the director of a company that um, bought and sold potatoes. And guess what happened to the potatoes? Pretty much ended up in some poor mash <laughs> that ended up being sold off to pigs for pig mash. <laughs> so I looked up these uh, the, the, the types of potatoes, the Cypress spring potatoes, but they're not so good for mash. I checked that. Oh, really? Okay. It's not, not, it's not the ideal way to cook a Cypress spring potato. See, what I like about you, Callum, is that we've done so many of these things now that you know my bad dad jokes that are coming and you now are second-guessing my jokes. <laughs> <laughs> doing the doing the due diligence on the jokes doing before the they come. Due diligence, exactly. Right. So, um, well, look, it's it's a good case because uh, what we're what we're going to get into is looking at um, implied terms in sale of goods contracts. Um, we're going to look at it from an English perspective, and I think it's really important from the outset uh, to keep in mind the history of sale of goods law in England. Um, and if we go back to before 
1890-odd, um, we were dealing with the common law for these types of um, issues. We were dealing with whether um, a term might be implied as to the merchantability of goods into a contract so that there's this common understanding between seller and buyer as to what state or what quality the goods will have, even if the contract doesn't mention anything about um, the quality expressly. So before, you know, in the in the 19th century until right at the end, until the, the first edition of the Sale of Goods Act came into being, we were dealing with the common law. Then uh, we had the first Sale of Goods Act and that codified some of these common law principles. And that's what we're going to be looking at today, a case that then came much later in the 1960s that's looking at what was then in place, the, the, the Sale of Goods Act, um, as it was then. Uh, and we'll get into that. But the principles that were discussed in this case of, of MASH and Emanuel um, are still relevant today, even though there have been um, uh, subsequent revisions of that Sale of Goods Act. And so keeping, keeping the history and the kind of origin and the progression of um, the sale of goods law is, is important. The actual principle we're going to talk about today is still relevant um, to today, even though we've got a different sale of goods act to, to deal with. Yeah, exactly. And there's also an interesting procedural point here, which is, which is that we're looking at a high court case, which was ultimately overturned on appeal. But it's the High Court case that has the 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 legal position that endures and which is of interest. The appeal, um, and I'm not quite sure how this worked, but the appeal overturned the the, the High Court decision on the basis of a of a different fact pattern, which I found interesting in the context of a podcast we did a few weeks ago, Luke, where in that case the the Court of Appeal expressly said that they were that, that their ability to make a decision was 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 fettered by the High Court making findings on facts and the arbitrators making findings on facts. Um, I don't know exactly what the difference was between these situations. Whether there's whether there's new law going on there, I'm sure there's there's maybe some um, some keen-eared listeners will will explain the difference to me. Um, but in, in this in this case, um, the the is the court is the high court decision that we're interested in, and it's the and it's the high court decision which is um, the the kind of legal principle. Yeah, it seems back to front, doesn't it? It's it's usually. Um you're stuck with the facts at first instance and then you go to the Court of Appeal to turn turn the law over. Whereas here, they've, they've got the law sorted at first instance and then gone to the Court of Appeal to reverse the facts and they've done so successfully. So it got me um, tied up. I was like, hang on, we've, we've focused on this first instance case, uh, which is what's referred to in, in the, um, the, the publications and subsequent cases, but actually went on appeal. So, yeah, interesting one. I we I haven't focused on that for the purposes of today's podcast, but I'd be interested to know how that how that worked procedurally. But also, again, one point, and I won't get into this too much. It, it was interesting reading through the case we are going to discuss today, the first instance decision before uh, Diplock um, Justice, as he then was. Um, uh, in, in that um, counsel for the defendant really seemed to go large on arguing the law at first instance. And it didn't seem to be argued all that much, from at least from the, the judgment itself, that um, the facts were in dispute. And 
there was this interesting evidential point that I picked up um, as I read through a column where the claimants hadn't led expert evidence, but the respondents had led expert evidence. And it didn't seem like that was really um, focused on in the judgment. And I just wondered whether um, that may have been part of it, is, is whether the judgment was, was more focused on the law and resolving a legal question for some reason, and the factual um, aspects were not um, delved into in the way that we might expect. I, I don't know, uh, but uh, they, they just it seemed a little strange to me. I found it's that slightly odd that, that, that expert evidence was only led on one side and it, there's no real explanation for it in the judgment. Um, and the judge didn't really look into the facts in a huge amount of detail on why the potatoes became rotten. Uh, so we don't... And you know, to be honest, for, the, for our purposes and for the purposes of our listeners, some 65 years on, I don't think we really care why in this in this case the potatoes became rotten we don't we don't but it's it's important to to note that with the legal principles we're going to talk about were on the basis so we're talking about some potatoes that were shipped from cyprus to england um the facts don't really matter all that much but the question is um and we're going to talk about the the, the nature of uh, the implied term by the sale of goods act as to well, at this time it was merchantability, but in these days it's we, we use the phrase the satisfactory uh, quality, uh, which is in the latest um, Sale of Goods Act. But we'll, we'll talk about that and unpack it. But the, the question is all about when, when the seller puts those goods on board the ship, um, do, the, do the goods need to be in merchantable quality as at the time of putting the goods on board the vessel, so the, the time of actual delivery and when risk passes, or do the goods need to be able to withstand an ordinary carriage through to where they're intended to be delivered? And so we're not talking about um, you know, cargo damage claims here. That's a different type of claim. And if there was, if you are the uh, receiver, the um, the buyer here, and you had a problem that arose during the voyage, you would presumably look to the carrier for a problem that happened during the voyage while you're on risk. We're not talking about the t- this that topic today. What we're talking about is the sale contract between seller and buyer and what is the quality of the goods that the buyer is buying. And do those goods need to withstand an ordinary voyage um, from in this case from Cyprus to England, such that when the goods, when the potatoes get to England, that they're still in merchantable state. And so it's not just to withstand the voyage, it's also for a reasonable time thereafter to be sold as goods that are fit for human consumption. Yeah, and if, if you're the seller in this context, you would be saying, no, no way. I, I'm selling you goods and I'm placing them on board a vessel and that's, those are my obligations finished. So when I have an obligation in the contract as to the merchantability of these goods or the fitness for the purpose of these goods, those implied terms are only insofar as the goods are put on board the ship. And if you're the buyer, you're saying, no, in order to be fit for purpose or in order to be merchantable, they have to be merchantable on discharge or fit for purpose on discharge. Um, and the buyer's not going as far as, as saying they have to be merchantable on discharge you know no matter what come what may because there is an understanding that the buyer is 
uh, has has some risk um, during the during during transit. However, the buyer is saying, in ordinary circumstances, if this if this if this voyage is performed in an ordinary way, then your your obligation to give me merchantable goods means that they have to be merchantable on receipt at the at the disport. Yeah, and I th- I think it's it is useful just to look at what very briefly what happened in the in the appeal case to kind of make the point. Well, factually, what ultimately was decided here was that there was a problem during the voyage, that it wasn't an ordinary voyage and that um, the potatoes weren't ventilated during loading properly. That was the factual decision, ironically, at court of appeal level, not at, in this case, in this first instance decision. In the first instance decision, they said that the, the cargo um, was subject to a, an ordinary voyage. There wasn't a problem, um, or at least it was presumed that it was an ordinary voyage. Um, and so when you, when, you, when you identify that, when you kind of focus on the factual differences, you can see what we're talking about. If something were to happen to the cargo during the voyage, that's, that's different. That's a different category. It's something else. What we're talking about is the, the goods, if they're just subjected to a normal, ordinary voyage, do they still have to be in, um, in the quality that's being warranted on an implied basis? Um, on, uh, on actual physical delivery onto the ship and does it need to be the same when it gets to the other end and for a reasonable period of time to be able to, to, to sell, sell the products into the market. And so the place to start on this question um, is on the version of the Sale of Goods Act that was in place at the time and that was the 1893 version um, and we're looking at sections 14 um, sub 1 sub 2 uh, and it was argued on on three bases by the plaintiff one uh, on section 14 one on section 14 two and also as a residual type allegation based on the common law and it's interesting I thought that Callum that they still had the um, the pre-1893 common law argument there as well as a kind of catch-all if it's not caught by sections 14, 1 and 2. Yeah, I agree. I thought that was interesting. And it, and it was interesting how it was treated by the judges as all really being the same question. I, there's a, there's a, a great phrase in this, actually, um, which I'll pull up if I can find it quickly. Oh, here it was. Yeah. <laughs> so he basically said that section 14, 1... And section 14.2 were two sides of the same coin. Um, and let's, let's talk about each of those in a second. Um, but then he went on to talk about this slide. If it were possible for the coin to have three sides, um, I should say that the, the implied term being argued under common law um, is effectively another side of that that coin. So I thought that was a neat line. And this was actually the, I saw that, um, this case was before um, Diplock when he was a justice uh, sitting on the on the Queen's bench, and this was his last year before he was appointed um, as a Lord to the Court of Appeal. Um, so yeah, interesting. Should we go through Section fourteen one and then Section fourteen two? So this is at that time. I'll, I'll read them out. Well, why don't I deal first with Section fourteen one, and we'll talk about that for a moment. So this is the Sale of Goods Act, 1893, being looked at in the 1960s. Section 14.1, where the buyer 
expressly or by implication, makes known to the seller the particular purpose for which the goods are required so as to show that the buyer relies on the seller's skill or judgment and the goods are of a description which it is in the course of the seller's business to supply, whether he be the manufacturer or not. There is an implied condition that the goods shall be reasonably fit for such purpose. And then two um, is where goods are bought by description from a seller who deals in goods of that description, whether he be the manufacturer or not. There is an, an implied condition that the goods shall be of merchantable quality. So you've got these two different types of implied terms here. One is about knowledge of um, of the seller and whether, whether the buyer tells um, the, the seller um, what the particular purpose will be for these goods and this concept of, of reliance, that there's reliance upon um, the, the seller's skill and judgment. And then there's this second one about, well, if um, the buyer does not tell the seller um, what the particular purpose will be for those goods, what should be implied as a matter of, I don't know, let's say, common knowledge or industry understanding? You know, is it clear that potatoes for human consumption means that they have to be um, of a certain quality to be eaten at the other end? Um, so it's more of a broad um, industry understanding, custom type implied term. Yeah, exactly. And I was, I was quite interested to see how this trapped through to the modern day sale of goods act um so i had a look at sale of goods act 1979 which is the latest iteration and you have the implied terms there at clause uh, sorry section 14 section and section 14 um subsection 2 says that where the seller sells goods in the course of business there's an implied terms that the goods supplied under the contract are of satisfactory quality and satisfactory quality is then set out in section 14 subsection 2b where it talks about um the the the, the first thing it says is that to, in order to be sat of satisfactory quality the goods have to ha have to have uh, fitness for all the purposes which the goods of the kind in question are commonly supplied um and interestingly at 14 subsection 3 um, it talks about the situation that you were talking about there, Luke. It says, where the seller sells goods in the course of the business and the buyer expressly or by implication makes known to the seller any particular purpose for which the goods are being bought, there's an implied term that the goods supplied under the contract are reasonably fit for that purpose. Um, and in this case, in, in our case, a similar, a similar test would apply. And the, the the buyer was saying there, well, you know that we're going to sell these for human consumption. Um, and and therefore, they have to arrive in a condition where we can sell them for human consumption. Otherwise, they're not in, in the condition that they're supposed to be in for, um, for, for us to accept the goods. So... That I mean, that, and that was really where where the where the case turned. The and um, the the high court said they they agreed with the with the buyer, and they said if you're selling goods and you know the purpose for these goods, and that can be that can be made out on a number of different um, evidential grounds. For example, if you're if you're a buyer in this situation, you can say, well, we've traded with you in the past, and you know what we do. You know you know how our business operates. So that we we made that purpose known to you by implication. 
Um, or it can be expressed. You can say, well, we, you can say in the contract, we're going to use these goods to sell them, in, uh, to sell potatoes in Liverpool. Um, but as long as the seller knows the reason why the buyer is buying the goods, then the goods have to be fit for that purpose. Um, and to, in order to be fit for that purpose, the High Court uh, quite sensibly held that the goods had to be in a condition on delivery, i.e. when they were put on board the ship, that meant that they could survive the voyage and still be fit for the sales purpose. So the, the, the purpose of the the purpose of the of the goods were selling them at the end of a voyage, not selling them at the start of a voyage. If that makes sense. That does make sense. That does make sense. Exactly. And one of the um, well, I suppose one of the leading decisions on this issue at the time was the the bear no sorry the beer and walker case um which which was not about beer (laughs) and i'm struggling to equate beer with the product in that case um but it was all about rabbits Mm, the famous rabbits case as they as they called it and what what I, i didn't immediately I couldn't immediately work out from this was whether the rabbit in what form the rabbits were. <laughs> you know, it's like like how do you how do you refer to rabbit meat, for example? Like, is, is that what you call rabbits? Do you call that rabbits, or were these actual rabbits? It's not like um, beef or pork, where you have the name of the animal and then the name of the meat. It's just, but also they don't they don't refer to rabbit meat. They refer to the rabbits. Which did when I first read it, I was thinking they must be talking about living rabbits, but I'm pretty sure they were talking about the carcasses of, ra- of rabbits. I know this is. I don't know how we got onto this, but th- this is what it says. That was a case of rabbits being sent from London to Brighton. The rabbits were of merchantable quality, that is to say, fit for human consumption when they were sent from London. But when they were delivered to the defendants in Brighton, they were putrid and valueless. Yeah, I like the, the just in the context of that slight tangent. The the deputy county court judge said when the rabbits were sent from London, they were in good order and condition. And I suppose that depends on whether you ask the rabbit or not. <laughs> well, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I, I had a little chuckle about that. Poor rabbits. Um, right. So in again, that case was about. Um, where to whom does the the loss fall as it was put um so there was no issue in that case that the rabbits were were in good quality they were merchantable they were fit for human consumption when they were put on board the train um in london but then they get to the other end and they're no longer in good order and condition and so the the question is well what has happened during the voyage? Why are the why is the um, of the rabbits become valueless and putrid? Was it because of something that happened that's out of the ordinary uh, during the voyage, or uh, was there a problem with them uh, from the outset and they weren't in in a state to to withstand that voyage? Such that when they get to the other end, they're not they're not going to be fit for human consumption. Yeah, and in in the county court in that case, in the divisional court in Brighton, I believe. They, the um, the deputy county court judge said, "I'm of the opinion that the, that 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 condition, which is a reference to the um, merchantable condition, was satisfied 
if the rabbits were delivered in good order and condition to the railway in London. So they they effectively were saying if if you can get to the point of discharge, then you satisfied what you need to do as the as the seller. But this in this case then went to the, the the point of discharge or the point of sorry the point of loading. So the, 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 in this case, the rabbits were being sent from London, and in the divisional court, the county the county the deputy county court judge said, "I think that as long as the sellers can get these rabbits to the um, to to the point of loading, then then they satisfy their their requirement." But it, it then got appealed. Um, and on appeal, the judge said, I'm of the opinion that the implied warranty extended to the time at which, in the ordinary course of transit, the rabbits should reach the defendant, and not only to that time, but that it continued until the defendant should have a reasonable opportunity of dealing with them in the ordinary course of business. So the, so the, the court there was saying, well, if you're buying rabbits to sell, you have to have the opportunity to sell them at the other end. Yeah, it's it's kind of like what's the point of the contract? You know, what's the point? What's the point of the deal if, as a as a a buyer, you're buying goods that by the time they get to you are of no good? Now, if something happens to them, if someone doesn't look after them and you're at risk, then okay, you've got a claim against the carrier. Fair enough, but. Between seller and buyer, you can understand why why this implied warranty um, exists. And at this point in time, this was before the sale of Goods Act. So this was before 1893, this Beer and Walker case. And so what we're looking at is the common law principle um, of merchantable quality, which was then codified in, in 1893 in the Sale of Goods Act. That was the subject of the MASH case. Do you think you'd still get this implied term on the on the current Marks and Spencer's test? Being does it is it either so obvious that it goes without saying? I'd say maybe, but not necessarily. Or alternatively, is it necessary to give business efficacy to the contract? And there, I think you probably get home. Probably, I, I think you. Pro- I think you probably do still get home on it. it, it it's a. It's a abstract question in a way because there's been so much that has happened since that time on this law there's been codifications of of it um and look one point that's worth making on this callum is that we regularly see statutory implied terms excluded from contracts that's commonly done um and that may be the common law implied terms or it may be the what's been codified by the Sale of Goods Act. And the parties then say, well, whatever's written in this contract expressly, uh, that those are the only um, warranties or conditions that you're going to get as to the quality of the goods. And so rather than leave it to the law, um, it's going to be set out by the parties in their contracts. I think you probably do still get it because, as I say, I don't, I don't see how the contract makes sense um, where, it's a, where it's a contract that contemplates carriage of those goods to somewhere else. Um, and if you're, you know, if you're a, um, a seller and you're agreeing to a contract excluding these types of protection, sorry, if you're a buyer, and you're agreeing to excluding these types of protections that you get, you want to make sure that you have pretty good, clear, express um, terms uh, that, that allow you and ensure that you do get those goods in, in a decent state at the end. 
end of the voyage. Yeah, and that, and in the modern context, we'd be talking about a FOB or a CIF buyer there. Exactly. I also um, wanted to note that um, there were a number of other cases that were cited um, in in support of the, the position, um, which the which um, the judge looked to and relied upon. Um, but really, it was the the um, Beer and Walker decision that was the the main one but i also i like this line as uh, and i i wanted to emphasize this just in case that there are some australian students who have listened into this podcast before the course um and I'll, I'll just read this out verbatim against those authorities mr roskill relies on a decision of the high court of australia bowden brothers and co limited v little I greatly welcome the citation of Australian and other Commonwealth cases, particularly in a commercial court where great assistance can be derived from seeing the way in which other great common law courts have dealt with analogous problems. Remembering this is back in a time when the um, legal systems were completely connected and an appeal from the Australian courts went to the Privy Council. uh, but I, I love that line. I thought it was a great line. As it turns out, the decision in Bowden Brothers wasn't all that helpful, I think. <laughs> um, and the judge noted that at that time, um, there were still juries sitting on uh, first instance decisions. Also noted that they had um, a um, pre-judicature uh, act system of pleading um, which kind of meant that the pleadings were, were very important in terms of what were the issues before the courts. And it seemed to be that that case was kind of confined in some way. Um, and in any event, it didn't really answer the question that was before um, the court in, in the Mash and Murrell case. But still, I thought that was a nice little shout out to, for, for Australian cases. And actually, it's still it's still true. Um, many years on, that you can sometimes find support for if you're in an untested area of law, then then you can find support for um, for your arguments in other Commonwealth jurisdictions. It was only a couple of weeks ago that we were looking at a Canadian case that was being cited in an English Court of Appeal decision, um, or maybe it was an English High Court decision. Can't, can't remember. It was one of the two, but they, you know, they the, 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 the zone of privacy were, one. Was exactly, that the zone of privacy. Exactly, the zone of privacy. I think it was the Court of Appeal. So I wonder if that was a male's case. It must have been a Court of Appeal, right? Yeah. So even, you know, even, even today, people are still looking to looking to other Commonwealth jurisdictions. And it's, uh, yeah, I guess one of the benefits of of, um, of working at ZFZ is that we have a number of people from different jurisdictions. We've got our, our US colleagues and we've got our Australian colleagues. And it is, it is informative and instructive often to to run legal issues by people in different jurisdictions to see how their jurisdiction would um, would understand it. Yeah, exactly. And so, look in this in this case, um, the ultimate uh, view of of the judge and the court, which stood the test of time and has been a, a principle that's been in place for decades, um, is that the the warranty as to merchantability was a warranty that. Um, should remain that the goods should remain merchantable for a reasonable time so the time reasonable in all the circumstances here that was for the voyage from cyprus to liverpool uh, limassol in cyprus to, to, to liverpool in the uk um, and for a reasonable time thereafter for, for the goods to be um, sold disposed of so 
Um, I think that's that's pretty yeah, pretty clear cut um, principle here. The the nature of the uh, warranty uh, or condition has um, has changed slightly. You know, there's been there's uh, we could have a, a whole you know discussion on what is the nature of um, what what the quality uh, implied term should be these days when what satisfactory quality means compared with merchantability um, that's a, a discussion for another day but um, the principle that the warranty runs through uh, and that, that the goods need to be um, merchantable or in satisfactory quality uh, for the contemplated voyage it that that does um, uh, stand to this day and there is as we've said still this, Distinction between the subjective type element, where you have, where you can tell as a seller, you can tell the buyer what the purpose is for the goods, and and the contracts then formed on that basis. And then there's a the secondary one where um, you're looking at it from more of an objective perspective. Well, what would be satisfactory quality for these types of goods? It's an interesting case, um, worth knowing about. Yeah, definitely. For one, one to put in in the armory in case in case you need it. All right. Well, so this is our our first look back case. Um, uh, next week we're going to to be looking at another older case and 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 do a couple leading up to this course. So um, thanks for listening in. We hope you've enjoyed something a bit different. Looking back at an old case. Uh, still relevant for commodities contracts to this day and and also just emphasizes that in common law countries, even um, countries that have codified certain aspects of the law, it's still important to look back at history. It's still important to see how these principles were dealt with years, decades, centuries ago um, and how that then runs through the line of authorities to the present day. Thanks for listening in, everyone. Until next time, take care. See you, Callum. Cheers, everybody. Cheers, Luke. Cheers. Bye.